This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. This is a podcast from Minute Media. Silver and Black Flashback with your host, author of the Raiders Encyclopedia, Rich Schmelter. As always, Murph, thank you so much, my Raider brother. You are the best. And thank you, Raider Nation, for once again tuning in to Silver and Black Flashback, where our glorious past comes back to life on this audio family album. So what are we waiting for? Nothing, my Raider Nation faithful. On with this episode titled, Jim Brown, the Logo, and a Legendary Topless Dancer. That's right, folks, a topless dancer. The Professional Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio, is the home of immortals, many of whom proudly wore the silver and black of our beloved Raiders. Now, of all our Raiders in the hall, there are a few with the surname of Brown. One of the game's greatest cornerbacks, Willie Brown. Powerful offensive lineman, Bob Boomer Brown. One of the legendary wide receivers the game has ever seen in Tim Brown and regarded by many as the greatest running back in pro football history, Jim Brown. What? Jim Brown a Raider? Now, before everyone throughout Raider Nation starts thinking, what the hell is this guy talking about, or just how many tequilas has he ingested, here is the story about the legendary Jim Brown wearing a Raiders uniform. Now let's go back to January 2nd, 1966. It was a cold, sloppy, snow-covered day in Green Bay, Wisconsin. The nasty weather conditions made the turf at Lambeau Field a mud bath, with Jersey so covered in mud that it was hard to determine who was who. After a close first half, the Packers took control of the game and were 23-12 winners over the defending NFL champion Cleveland Browns. And with that victory, the Packers claimed their third NFL title in five seasons. Now this also proved to be the final game for Jim Brown, after nine glory-filled seasons that saw the Cleveland Browns legend churn out 12,312 rushing yards to claim the top spot as the NFL's all-time leading rusher. Jim Brown was an amazing athlete with a 45-inch chest, 32-inch waist, and powerful thighs mixed with power and speed. He retired following the 1965 season to pursue a movie career, which he conquered just as successfully as he did opponents on the football field. However, it was felt that Jim Brown's retirement from football came way too soon, while he was still at the top of his profession at age 29 after collecting his third NFL Most Valuable Player of the Year award. In early 1966, Jim Brown was in London, England to co-star in the World War II classic film The Dirty Dozen. Now, due to bad weather, production on the film was delayed, and that meant that he would be late getting back to training camp for the upcoming season. Now, apparently... That did not make Cleveland Brown's owner Art Modell very happy, and he threatened to find Brown for every week of camp he missed. But instead of going along with Modell's warning, Brown announced his retirement to pursue his film career. Over the next 17 years, Jim Brown flourished as an actor in Hollywood. But in 1983, despite all of his success in the entertainment industry, he felt the need, at age 47, to once again focus on professional football. 
Now, without a doubt, Jim Brown was still a physical marvel, staying in excellent shape through weight training. The desire to return to the football field was sparked by the fact that Pittsburgh Steelers running back Franco Harris was closing in on Brown's all-time rushing record. Brown did not like Harris's tendency to run out of bounds, unlike the tough running style that Brown displayed throughout his career. He felt that gaining 1,000 yards in a season, consisting of 12 or 14 games when he played, as opposed to 16 games a season for half of Harris's career, made it much easier for a running back to reach the 1,000-yard barrier. Brown did admit that Harris was having a good career, and if he kept running out of bounds instead of fighting for that tough extra yardage, then he would break Brown's record. And that did not sit too well with Jim Brown. With Harris closing in on his record during the 1983 season, Brown announced that if Harris broke the record with his style of play, then he would come out of retirement to prevent it. And what team did he want to do it with? Well, none other than our Raiders. For it seemed like a perfect fit at the time. With the Raiders playing in Los Angeles and closing in on the Super Bowl championship, and Jim Brown living in Los Angeles, what better place to conjure up the idea than in a city where hype is an everyday occurrence? The media quickly jumped on the story, and on the cover of the December 12, 1983 edition of Sports Illustrated, there was Jim Brown wearing his famous number 32 on a black Raiders uniform with a Raiders helmet tucked under his right arm with a badass look on his face that truly represented our renegades. He was then going to call Al Davis about joining the team for the 1984 season. Now, the big question was if Marcus Allen, who wore number 32 at the time, would give up that number on a short-term basis for the great Jim Brown. Unfortunately, that question never had to be answered because Chicago Bears legendary running back Walter Payton was the one who broke Brown's all-time rushing record in 1984. Payton was a true warrior, just like Brown always fighting for that extra yardage no matter how many tacklers were on him. Peyton's style made Brown proud, and he was able to go back to making a lot of money in the entertainment industry. However, for that one fleeting moment in time, he sure looked awesome in a silver and black uniform on that magazine cover. Okay, Raider Nation, if you never had a chance to check out that cover, it is great, folks, and can easily be seen with a simple Google search. Just go to Jim Brown, Sports Illustrated cover, December 12th, 1983. I promise it will not disappoint. All right, Raider Nation, for our next story on this episode, we are going way back to the Raiders' early days when the world-famous and one of the most popular logos in sports history was created. In 1960, one of the team's founders, Chet Soda, asked the Raiders' director of public relations, Gene Lawrence Perry, to get an artist to design a team logo. Perry then went out and hired an artist from Berkeley, California, to do the job. The idea was to create a firm-jawed pirate wearing a football helmet. Now, it is unclear whether the artist or a Raiders employee apparently came up with using a popular movie actor named Randolph Scott as the inspiration, but that is whose likeness will forever be associated with the logo. The team's colors during their first three seasons were black and gold, so the logo had the same colors even though it would not appear on the helmets until 1963. An eye patch was placed over the pirate's right eye with a black helmet on his head, and that was then laid on top of a gold football with a pair of crossed swords behind the football. In 1963, 
Al Davis took over as head coach and turned a hapless team that only won nine games in three seasons into instant winners as the Raiders rang up ten victories in Davis's first season at the helm. One of the things he immediately changed was what the team wore on the field. The black and gold worn before his arrival represented losing, and Davis was not about that. He kept the black, but got rid of the gold, and added silver in its place to create, yep, you guessed it, the glorious mixture of silver and black. The trademark silver helmets also arrived beginning in 1963. The insignia of a raider appeared for the first time on the side of the helmet. The insignia is modified to that that still represents the team. It consisted of a shield with a raider wearing a black helmet, a patch still over his right eye, and a pair of swords crisscrossing behind his head with a silver background. On the upper portion of the shield was a black background with silver writing that read, The Oakland Raiders. And in 1964, the insignia's background was changed to a shield with a black background. The pirate's helmet became silver with a black stripe down the middle and the word Raiders in silver writing above his head. The sword and eye patch remained. What a logo! Yesterday, today, and always. Without a doubt, the best damn logo ever in professional football. Am I right, Raider Nation? Hell yeah, I am. And that brings us to our third and final story of this episode, the sexy side of our wild bad boys and one of their most passionate fans who also happened to be a famous topless dancer, the legendary pride of Northern California, Carol Ann Dota. Carol was born in California in 1937, and by the early 1950s, she became a cocktail waitress and later a lounge entertainer at the Condor Club in San Francisco. She also attended the San Francisco Art Institute, but she was a work of art all by herself. On June 19, 1964, at the Condor Club, the then 26-year-old Carol became the first noted stripper of the time to perform topless. No need to say this, but I will. Carol's topless debut was a huge hit. She even found her way into motion pictures, most notably 1968's Head, starring the popular rock band The Monkees. Carol was sexy, blonde, and absolutely gorgeous, and she decided to capitalize on her fame by taking her breast size from 34 to size 44 through silicone injections. And it was then that they were promoted as Dota's Twin 44s and the new Twin Peaks of San Francisco. On September 3, 1969, Carol decided to kick her act up a notch by performing totally in the nude. Amazing, right? But wait for this one, Raider Nation. Carol Dota was also crazy about our Raiders. Damn. I mean, what other professional football team's history can compare to ours? None, my silver and black faithful. None. The Raiders used to have some wild times during training camp, and one of those involved an air hockey tournament where cheating was highly encouraged. So if you were not cheating, then what fun was it to play in the tournament? There were all types of ways the players cheated, but the great Hall of Fame wide receiver Fred Belintnikoff earned major status as the ultimate air hockey cheater when he invited Carroll, who shared mutual friends with him, to be the tournament's honorary queen. Now, if it would have ended there, the event would have been perfect. However, 
Carol was the ultimate performer and joined in the festivities by stopping puck shots with her massive twin 44s. Her involvement with the Raiders also included posing topless with Ken Stabler for a pictorial in a 1979 issue of the adult men's magazine, Partner. That issue was so popular that it quickly sold out in Oakland and in San Francisco. Carol continued to perform even at age 45, and after taking dance and voice lessons, she performed throughout the San Francisco area with her band, The Lucky Stiffs. She retired from stripping in the 1980s and ran Carol Dota's Champagne and Lace Lingerie Boutique in San Francisco. She passed away in 2015 in San Francisco at age 78. Well, my Raider brothers and sisters, it is once again time to sign off on another episode of Flashback. Here is hoping that all of you enjoyed the show as much as I had bringing it to you, the best damn fan base ever assembled. So proud to call myself a member of this incredible fraternity where all that is needed to join is a deep passion for our beloved team of silver and black heroes from yesterday and today. So, as I always say to close out each show, with every ounce of pride and poise and my commitment to excellence to each and every one of you in the silver and black universe, I say, wait for it, here it comes, love you Raider Nation! When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.